Hello and welcome to the Movies Past and Present Podcast. This is episode one of the podcast and it's November 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Stanford Clark, and I am podcasting from the crossroads of the West in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. Just like my blog, moviespastandpresent.com, I'll be providing reviews and commentary about current and classic cinema. Thanks for tuning in and let's get started. First off, let's talk about the new releases in theaters for the weekend of Friday, November 9th, 2018. We've got three big studio releases this weekend. First up is Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, which is a computer-generated animated version of this beloved tale. Uh, It's based on the 1957 book by Dr. Seuss, and... uh, in the year 2000, there was also a live-action film adaptation of it, directed by Ron Howard and starring Jim Carrey. Um, so here we've got another feature-length version of this story. Uh, but i got to tell you, I still think it's just hard to beat the 1966 animated TV special that was directed by Chuck Jones and narrated by the great Boris Karloff. Uh, these film adaptations again. I haven't seen this new one, the the one done in two thousand, the live action one. I just thought it was pretty dreadful. You know, the, the real issue I have with with it is that here they're taking a, a children's story that's got a pretty simple narrative, trying to turn it into a ninety plus minute feature film. So of course, some details have got to be added. And it always seems to be that they go for some kind of a backstory. So we learned that the Grinch is bullied as a child or something and was misunderstood. And, you know, it's how he became the Grinch. And just think, no, he was the Grinch. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, this backstory business drives me nuts. So I'm not just dying to see this film. I probably will go. If I do, I'll let you know. But uh, Dr. Seuss is the Grinch opens, and I think a lot of families will probably be going. Uh, Illumination Entertainment, which is the animation studio behind it, they uh, have the blessing of the, of the Dr. Seuss estate. They've also, the uh, producers of the film have also worked with with uh, Dr. Seuss's family and this, you know those people uh, over his estate. Uh, on two other films, Horton Hears a Who and The, Lo- the Lorax. So we'll see what they do. It's probably visually it's going to be fun. They do they do some nice animation there at, at Illumination, but I don't know. I think if you really want to Grinch it, just watch that great 1966 animated special, which I think is widely available and will be on TV during the month of December too. The Grinch is rated pg for brief, rude humor. All right, next is Overlord. Overlord is a uh, part war movie and part zombie horror movie. It uh, is set in a, it's set in uh, World War II. Clearly, it's going to be a big revisionist history type of story. Uh, and it appears that it's going for R-rated thrills. In fact, it is rated R. 
for strong bloody violence, disturbing images, language, and brief sexual content, according to the Motion Picture Association of America. So, anyway, it's from Paramount Pictures. Uh, this one really isn't my thing either, but if you like uh, zombie horror movies with lots of gore, sounds like this might be uh, a fun diversion for your weekend. All right, then last up uh, with the with the big studio releases this weekend is The Girl in the Spider's Web, a new dragon tattoo story. This is from Columbia Pictures. It is uh, an adaptation of the fourth novel in this Millennium series, as it's called, which began with the Swedish crime author Stieg Larsson. So... Sorry about it, if any of this is a boring repeat to you, but I think there's a lot of versions of this stuff going on, and I hope, hopefully this will help help uh, make some sense of it all. So, uh, Stieg Larsson wrote the original book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and he had envisioned 10 books in this series, and the series was called the Millennium Series. And he ended up dying in 2004 after only had written, he had only had finished three of the books. So the uh, family and the, the estate of, of uh, Stieg Larsson, uh, finally in 2015, they, they uh, published another book in this Millennium series called The Girl in the Spider's Web. And it was written by a man, a Swedish man by the name of David uh, Lagerkrantz. Sorry about my pronunciation. So uh, he, then a film version, that, that book was published in 2015. This film version now is now coming out uh, this weekend. So the, uh, there were three, those, those three original books, those all got made in, into movies in Sweden. Uh, I saw that first the the first one in the came out in two thousand nine, also called the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and and uh, it's pretty grisly stuff again again not really not really my thing but so in two thousand and eleven an American version of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, was released and it was directed by David Fincher. And it starred Rooney Mara as as our main character Elizabeth uh, Salander. So in this new in this new story, this uh, the girl in the spider's web, Claire Foy picks up the lead as Elizabeth, and uh, you know it just looks like it's 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 more of of the same. So we'll. Uh, We'll see how uh, how it plays and how uh, how audiences respond. This film is rated R for violence, language, and some sexual content and nudity. There you have it. So three releases this weekend. The Grinch, Overlord, and The Girl in the Spider's Web. Now for a couple of reviews which I've recently posted to my blog uh, of two big releases that opened up last weekend, so on November 2nd. First is, is The Nutcracker and The Four Realms. 
This is a big feature and a feature film from uh, Walt Disney Studios. So family oriented. It's a it's a somewhat kind of a retelling of the Nutcracker, but really it's just an original story. In fact, I really don't know if there was even a Nutcracker in it. There were soldiers, but as far as just like kind of Nutcracker turning into human or vice versa. Anyway. But uh, stars Clara, you know, this cute little girl Clara, who ends up going into this strange parallel world. Uh, there are four realms. The, these people in the four realms are fighting each other. Uh, it also stars Helen Mirren and Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley plays the Sugar Plum Fairy, and Helen Mirren plays another character. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for you if you're going to go. It's really quite mediocre. I thought it was lovely to look at, uh, which was the thing that surprised me the most because seeing the previews, it looks so uh, heavy on the computer-generated imagery that I thought I might not like it that much because of that. But actually, it's really it's the story or, or lack thereof that really makes the film rather rather boring. It made me sad, though, ultimately, because they really brought in an A-list team of creatives to work on it. So it was co-directed by Lassie Hallstrom and Joe Johnston. I don't know who did what part. You know, if they just if they split up tasks or, or if one of them had to take over uh, for whatever reason. But uh, anyway, two very competent directors. And then... Uh, James Newton Howard did a lovely soundtrack. They brought in uh, Gustave Odudamel, who is a marvelous uh, symphonic conductor. Uh, he's currently uh, the music director of the LA Philharmonic, and he's you know conducting all over the world. But they did some cool stuff with him that was very reminiscent of of uh, Fantasia. Walt Disney's original Fantasia with Leopold Stokowski conducting. I really loved I loved that. In fact, I was wishing that they would show more of that. Uh, the pianist Lang Lang uh, is on the soundtrack. And uh, they brought in Misty Copeland, who is the uh, principal dancer with American Ballet Theater in New York, who's just, you know, this amazing uh, ballet dancer. And then the end credits has a really nice song by Andrea Bocelli and his son. Uh, but, you know, sadly, all this creative talent still can't save a, a pretty stupid story. All right, then uh, the other big release last weekend was Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the Queen biopic, or really more of a Freddie Mercury biopic, although I guess it's, I guess it's still some of both. But they uh, show in this film kind of a history of the band and and uh, a lot of concert footage and different things that were all, I guess, you know, concert recreations. So everybody I talked to that has seen this movie, for the most part, really likes it. Uh, and I think that the my my theory behind it the reason is is because it ends on such a brilliant note so the biopic part is re really almost a, a slog i i thought you know 
kind of dotted with cool concert scenes, as well as some interesting scenes on 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 the creative process that the band used to 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 record to record some of their great albums. But uh, oh, it just get to me. It just really got bogged down with with uh, with the biography part, and then. Also, it turns out that that uh, they really took some artistic liberty with uh, with timeline and events. Uh, they mean the filmmakers. Now, I understand that you know you, you got to cram a lot of information often into these biopics, and you also need to make it dramatically interesting for the viewer, right? So, I'm sure, some of that stuff has to happen. But these things were big enough and kind of obvious enough that. That uh, I thought they were problematic. Uh, spoiler alert on a couple of these things, in case you you know you, you haven't seen the film already. But so the big climax of this movie is the uh, Live Aid concert from 1985. That big benefit concert that was thrown in both the UK and the US, and you know pretty much every major act what had had a had a set. Uh, either in the U.S. or or in in uh, in Great Britain, and, and so it was at Wembley Stadium in London, and Queen had just an absolutely brilliant set they did, and it's it's well documented on. I mean, there's versions of it. I mean, you can see it on YouTube and and whatnot, and you know, I know the word is I think has been a bit overused, but it's electric. I mean, it is just amazing. This this set that Queen performed, they were just at the top of their game, and so so good. And the film really captures that, and so you leave on a real high. But right up to this Live Aid scene in the movie, uh, you know, Freddie Mercury goes to his parents' house. I mean, he's literally dressed in the stuff that he's wearing, the clothes that he's wearing uh, for the Live Aid show, and. He like goes and has tea tea with his parents and kind of has a reconciliation with his dad who who he's who he's been at odds with for really pretty much the whole movie. And then he also even before that he finds this guy who he was a true you know because he wanted to date and he he had been in a way been looking for him for a while. He had met him at a party. Um, so then he finds the guy too, and then of course takes him to go have tea with his parents before they go to the show. So some of that stuff, I just kind of roll my eyes. Like, really, can we do, have done something, you know, maybe a little more toward to reality or or make it more make it more interesting? I don't know. That that part really didn't didn't work for me. But holy smokes, then the last you know twenty plus minutes of the film are all this live aid recreation, and it's it's awesome. So so again, you leave on a high. Uh, had some good stuff. Rami Malek is so good in the role. He is Freddie Mercury, just like you know you're hearing everybody say. And uh, concert stuff is cool, but wow, I have some real problems with the with the plot. So anyway, that's uh, those are reviews. Now it's time for classic cinema corner, where I talk classic movies. Talk about opportunities to see classic movies on the big screen, as well as other pertinent information for the classic movie fan. 
First up is the demise, sadly, of the streaming service called Filmstruck. Filmstruck was created a couple of years ago by the folks at Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection. And they just had a really cool, eclectic mix of, of classic, foreign, and art house films. And uh, beautifully curated, lovely graphics, wonderful little documentaries uh, that they scattered throughout the film or the, throughout their, you know, uh, library or, 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 you know, programs that they had available and just, just a really, a, a great service that really filled, I think, kind of a, a niche for, for people that, that like art house movies and that like, uh, a little different selection that's then that's, you know, readily available on Netflix. So sadly, uh, the Warner Media Group, which is this new group which has been formed uh, under the new ownership of Warner Brothers uh, under AT&T. But they uh, decided to close it. It's closing November 29th, and it's just a bum deal. I mean, I, I know that there's a petition that uh, people are... are uh, Encouraged to sign. I think last I read, even this morning, that there were over twenty five thousand people who had signed this petition. I don't know if the Warner Media Group is going to be listening to this at all, because frankly, I think that they've got some other stuff in, in mind of what they're wanting to do with with uh, streaming services. Given that it's such a highly competitive uh, marketplace now, and so so uh, going to be so hotly contested, both with everything that Netflix is doing and then with Disney throwing in their hat in the ring uh, in 2019 and uh, all sorts of stuff's going on. So anyway, but still it was so nice to have this, this classic movie and, and, and a criterion collection uh, movie home, but uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. So anyway, RIP Filmstruck and thanks for, thanks for, just being great. Thanks to the team who, who, who created it. It's just terrific. Speaking of Netflix, they've got a couple of interesting new films. You know, I, I think one of the big weaknesses of Netflix is they have a horrible selection of, you know, what I consider classic films. So thank goodness for Turner classic movies. The, you know, the, the Turner classic movies network is fantastic. And then they also do a really nice job with their on-demand selections that you can view with through their watch TCM app. Or if you've got, I've got Xfinity and they've got a, a nice on-demand channel that shows pretty much the same movies that you can find on this watch TCM app. Um, if you're already, you know, if you've got, uh, if you're paying for cable TV with, with the service, you can access these. So anyway, they uh, have got some Orson Welles programming, which is really interesting. Uh, Orson Welles' last project was this movie that he worked on for many, many years called The Other Side of the Wind, and he, and he, and he never finished it. And... Uh, I uh, Orson Welles, as we all know, was really a tortured artist. I think he just think kind of an unhappy man, really bitter at Hollywood, really bitter towards 
Hollywood toward the studio system. Uh, I wonder, I think, too, how much that bitterness was also just toward American tastes or whatnot. But uh, the folks at Netflix funded both a documentary about this film, the, uh, this, the Other Side of the Wind film, and then they financed uh, a group under the supervision of director Peter Bogdanovich, who's in, who's an actor in the film, to make a finished cut. And then they've put it out on the Netflix service. So I've watched the documentary about it, which is called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Uh, and then I'm hoping this week to watch the uh, actual film, The Other Side of the Wind. Now, I've just have seen some reviews or some some comments on Twitter and other places about people who've seen the other side of the wind and they haven't been too positive. So I, I'm not expecting a lot. Uh, I think I respect Orson Welles' work more than I than I enjoy it. So, uh, but but we'll see. You know. Uh, I, th- I just think it's interesting that they did it and, and good for Netflix for using some of their deep pockets to to find something that's kind of interesting and artistic uh, like this. Then, uh, one final note on the big screen. This Sunday, so Sunday, November 11th, and Wednesday, November 14th, Turner Classic Movies is screening a 30th anniversary uh, edition, uh, I guess if you call it, although I think it's just the same movie, of Die Hard. So Die Hard as in Bruce Willis, Yippee-ki-yay, beep beep, and, and uh, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, all directed by John McTiernan. So how fun is that going to be to see it on the big screen? It's hard to believe it's been 30 years, but the film came out in 1988, and and it's going to be the November edition of the Turner Classic Movies Big Screen Classics uh, series. So so uh, check the Fathom Events website. It's fathomevents.com slash TCM. And it'll tell you if it's playing at a theater near you. And uh, I just love these Fathom Events uh, screenings that so much that... that TCM does, and I hope they'll, they'll, they'll last forever. All right. Well, so that does it for this episode of uh, Movies Past and Present. Uh, thank you again for tuning in, and we will hopefully see you next week. Bye.